Welcome, welcome back, and it's May, so uh, officially we are kicking off our new sermon series entitled The Delectable Mountains. You say, what? The Delectable Mountains. And so this title comes from uh, John Bunyan's book, famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never uh, read it, I encourage you, as you have time, it is the one of the best-selling books in the English language. Uh, some would say second to the Bible only. The best, well, definitely one of the best-selling books of all time, and it is worth your time. But <clears throat> it's uh, the delectable mountains. Uh, throughout this, this is an allegory of the Christian life, where you have the main character, Christian. Uh, going from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And on the way, Bunyan employs a number of metaphors, uh, striking metaphors for different realities. Uh, one of them, or two of them actually, uh, would be the Palace Beautiful and the Delectable Mountains. The Palace Beautiful and the Delectable Mountains. And so we have the Palace Beautiful is the first, really the first metaphor he uses for the church. For the church. The second one he uses comes later in the book. Uh, and so Christian has just escaped uh, from the giant despair. He has escaped from really wanting to commit suicide. It's a heavy scene in the book. Um, and he makes his way ultimately uh, to the delectable mountains where he finds some measure of rest and relief. So it's a really fascinating uh, book. But what strikes me is this is how Bunyan conceived of and described the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you, how would you describe it? If you were asked right now, how would you describe the church? What words, what descriptors would you use? I have a feeling that it would not be these, perhaps, that are popular in our culture. Maybe you, as a follower of Christ, would, would now very much, yes. But, but just think of our, our wider culture, even those within the church amongst Christians. How is the church described? Delectable? A beautiful palace? A place of rest? Refreshment? Encouragement? No. We tend to hear much worse descriptors, unfortunately, in our day. So what we wanted to do in this series, and this time when we're unable to gather, and dare I say, maybe can I voice what I think maybe is on the minds of many. Actually, I'm, I'm sure it's on the minds of many because I've heard it kind of hinted at. And, and I just want to express, I think, out loud what many are thinking or experiencing. And, uh, maybe, so in this unique time when we're unable to gather, and here's what I want to say, what many people are thinking is part of you perhaps likes not gathering. Part of you perhaps has enjoyed the experience of, of not having to gather with the body. And so what I wanted to do today and in the coming weeks is really to look at the book, to look at the Bible, to see God's word and how he describes his people, how he portrays his people. What is their composition? What is their makeup? What is their nature? And by the grace of God, to stir, to help cultivate in you a longing to want to gather again, to want to see how is it that this people can be so conceived as a beautiful palace. And that as we see that this is a place that saints throughout the ages, as they've gathered together, they have found nourishment for their souls, strength to press on, hope to endure, and great and beautiful things in their lives have manifested through the gathering of the church. That's what we want to see. What did they see? Help us to see it again, anew, afresh. And, and so here's what we're going to do this week. We're going to begin with a, a brief overview of the whole Bible, of how this theme of God's people is introduced and developed throughout the whole time. It's super important. I'll need a lot of grace and help from the Lord to do this well in one sermon. Uh, beginning next week, what we're going to do is build on this sermon. And we're going to take different titles, different pictures from the Bible, uh, that the, the Lord and under the, the Holy Spirit uses to describe the people of God, these different titles applied to God's people. We're going to open those up week by week and meditate on them. So next week for Mother's Day uh, is going to be the Bride of Christ. 
So we're going to look at that title, The Bride of Christ, The Church as the Bride of Christ. And so that's where we're going. Let's pray. We got a lot of ground to cover. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that uh, you would help me to speak clearly, help me to speak truthfully, help me to speak with full uh, conviction and belief in your word that it is able to accomplish that for which it is sent. Father, I pray that as those who hear it, whether it be those who hear me over the internet today, whether it be those who hear me uh, as they play it back, whether it be those who hear me even in passing as there are people walking on the trail, I pray that your word, the beauty of what you do in a sinful people to make us beautiful, may that beautiful gospel message, our hope made available in Christ, may that go forth to all who hear. And may we see there is great encouragement. There is great uh, forgiveness offered through this message. And so help us, we pray, and may you bless the preaching of your word uh, wherever it is being preached across these islands, uh, across the nation, and across the world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's your big idea. All right, so here's your big idea. I'm going to give it to you. The story of the whole Bible is the account of God's actions to create his people, to live in his place under his rule for his glory. That's it. That's the big idea. So I'll say it again. The story of the whole Bible is the account of God's actions. It's the account of God's working, his actions, to create his people, to live in his place under his rule for his glory. That's really a, a summary of the whole Bible from beginning to end. God forming a people to be with him under his rule for his glory. That's it. Everything else is fleshing out the details. So let's get started. Uh, I have two broad points that we'll use to package this, uh, and then we'll close it out with some practical implications and theological implications. So uh, point number one, Adam, Abraham, and the assembly of God. That's point number one. That's the broad. We're, we're kind of working Old Testament, if you, if you need to know. Adam, Abraham, and the assembly of God. And so we're going to trace this theme of people and just flush it throughout. There's a lot I'm going to leave left unsaid. Again, it's one sermon. Uh, maybe you're like, oh, he should have said this, or oh, I wish he would have brought this in. Yes, I know. But uh, I have one sermon, so I'm going to hit the broad brush strokes. Um, for some of you, this will be building on what we've discussed before. Uh, some of you, it'll be uh, brand new. And so, uh, here we go. Adam, we have to go back to the beginning. And the reason this is important is because there is a school of thought that I think is inaccurate. Uh, there is a school of thought in Christendom that teaches there are two peoples of God. That there are two peoples of God, two distinct plans of God. Uh, for redemption, and ultimately two uh, end-time plans, two end-time results that will one day come back together. Uh, but they, one of the distinctives of this teaching, and it was actually how I was brought up, it's how I was schooled, it's where my formal training is in, it's actually formally titled Dispensationalism. Uh, it is the predominant uh, teaching in our day and, or formulation as we understand the church as you grow up and you think you probably don't even realize this is operative in the backdrop for you. Uh, but it is. It very much is. And uh, as all this stuff with the coronavirus happens, um, right now there are churches. I'm getting constant um, uh, invitations uh, for prophecy, prophecy conferences. They, they want to see what is God's timeline? What's the, let's look at the end now. What is God doing in this? What does the coronavirus mean for the end of the world and the rapture? And what is God doing with Israel? And people are looking at the Jerusalem times. And, and, and what you got to understand is underneath all of these things is a paradigm that has not been the ruling paradigm for most of church history. Uh, I spoke a lot about this when we when we did our Revelation series, um, but that is operative underneath all of it. And one of the distinctives there is that Israel and the church, the New Testament church composed of Gentiles and Jews, that Israel and the church are two distinct, entirely separate entities. Uh, and that creates a lot of confusion. It creates a whole lot of 
issues with how you even read the Bible, uh, how you conceive of different texts, as the Old Testament, New Testament, all these types of things. What part of the New Testament is for the church? Is it after uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? That's for Israel, they would say, in a strict understanding of this, they would say that's all for Israel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, the kingdom of God, that's all for Israel. You get none of that Gentile. God has a different, they would even say that this, our time period is a mystery, that it was not prior revealed that this church aid is a mystery uh, and that now God's going to do something. He's going to rapture us out. He's going to resume his plans for Israel. So they have this, this scheme, but underneath all of it, underneath all of it, one of the huge driving paradigms is that there are two separate, two separate peoples of God, Israel and the church. And what I want to do as we trace this out from Adam to Abraham, uh, what I want to do is really take aim at that and show from scripture and in the weeks to come as well, that there is really only and always will be one people of God. There is one people of God. And that is clear from the Old Testament to the New. You'll see some surprising things in our time together. Uh, like the church, perhaps was not born at Pentecost. I'll, I'll defend that. I'll stake it and I'll defend it uh, briefly. But you'll see this. The church did not begin at Pentecost. Uh, it began much earlier. So let's start. Let's go to the beginning though. Adam. Adam. So God creates the world. Uh, so stick with me. We're going to move fast. Um, God creates the world. He's, he, the Bible opens with the creating scenes. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Uh, he creates the earth, this place. And then he forms his people. He forms Adam and Eve, the, the heads of the human race, his image bearers. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He creates them and he places them in his place. And what's that place? It's a garden in the east. The garden of what? the Garden of Eden. We all know this story. And then it says Genesis 1.28. So I hope you have your Bibles. We're going to be flipping around Genesis 1.28. We're going to be in Exodus a little bit, Deuteronomy, uh, Hebrews. It's just, we're, going to, we're going to jam. Uh, Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so uh, he creates them as his image bearers, which means in a sense, uh, I won't flesh this all out in the sermon, I've done it elsewhere. Uh, in a sense, uh, they were created to reflect his glory and to rule the world the way God would rule in his kingship, his world. And so he, he creates his image bearers and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so he gives them this mandate, basically replicate, be fruitful multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And here's the idea. In Eden, in Eden, God dwells with his people. In the garden, God dwells with his people. Outside of Eden, obviously, because God is omnipresent, he is there in a sense. But there is a very unique sense in which he dwells with his people in Eden, that he manifests himself uniquely with his people in his place. And so uh, the picture is this one that as Adam and Eve have children who are also image bearers, as they have children and then those children have children or grandchildren, the picture is that they would work the land. As they worked the land, that they would expand the garden and, and then that they would increase in people and they would continue to expand the garden. And as they do this, eventually the glory of God would cover the world as he dwelt with his people in harmony and unity. As his image bearers replicate, whose image replicates? God's. And it is a glorious, beautiful image. And so this picture has led many to see Eden as a, as a type of garden temple, as a type of uh, garden temple prototype, we could say, the place where God meets, dwells with his people, amidst his people. Interestingly enough, as we trace out the, this theme of temple or tabernacle, the tabernacle in his divine instructions has elements that look like a garden. The utensils that they use to serve the lampstand have elements that look, it looks like a garden. It's described in garden, gardening type of terms, plants and, and different types of decor and ornaments. Later, 
The tabernacle would give way to a temple. The temple would also have elements that look and remind the people of a garden. And then if we were to fast forward a lot to the very end, to Revelation, uh, you would see again, as the new heavens and a new earth comes down, we see elements from Genesis of this garden again at the very end. That's no accident because these things are shadows of things to come. In the very beginning in Genesis, we get glimpses of the end, shadows. Now, obviously, that plan to expand Eden in harmony and, and unity and beauty didn't pan out quite like that, did it? Genesis chapter 3 happened in the fall where they disobeyed God and ate of the forbidden fruit. The, we know the story, the sin of the, the reign of death, the curse of sin, uh, the ground is cursed, everything's cursed, the garden's cursed, now everything is upended. But in the midst of all these curses, all the consequences of sin, God gives the first promise of a redeemer, doesn't he? He gives the first promise of a coming redeemer in Genesis 3.15. The, the theological term for this is the, the proto-euangelion uh, or uh, the gospel before the gospel. It's a promise, Genesis 3.15, that one day, one day, God would send the seed of a woman. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. It's this promise that one day a redeemer was coming who would fix all of this. That a, that a man would be born of a woman. They aren't told when. They aren't told how long or, or necessarily given a ton of detail yet, but that this one would restore what they broke. And so the story continues. Genesis continues on to play out and it shows really the devastation and havoc that sin brought into this beautiful creation. The most repeated phrase in the book of Genesis is uh, three words, and he died, and he died, and he died. It just shows the devastation, the havoc that disobedience to God brings. It doesn't take long to see because uh, only a few chapters later, the earth becomes so full of wickedness. In Genesis chapter 6 through 9, uh, we read of the worldwide flood of Noah. That cute children's story that has all these happy animals going into a boat. That's actually about worldwide destruction and judgment where only a few people are, are spared. It's a devastating story, actually, of God's judgment and the horrors of sin. And so we see that only a few chapters later, Genesis chapter 6 to 9. We also see, in essence, that God recreates. I want you to listen. You remember that, that mandate from Adam and Eve? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, exercise dominion. Listen to Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. If you have a Bible, turn there. The next place we're going is Genesis 12. So if you want to get ahead of me, go there. But listen to Genesis chapter 9 as God speaks to Noah. This is after the flood and the waters have subsided. It says this, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sound familiar? The fear of you, now there's modifications because sin has entered the world, so the covenant, the terms are modified. The commands are modified. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the air, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the plants, I give you everything. And he goes on to, to talk about some more stipulations. Verse 7, though, I want us to jump ahead. And you... Be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. God couldn't be clearer. He repeated that command several times. He's telling Noah, this is a, a recreation story after sin. He's telling Noah, continue the mission. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with my glory. It's a type of starting over. And again, things go bad real fast, don't they? Noah and his sons multiply. They do. The people multiply. Uh, but they don't fill the earth. They don't spread out, do they? They actually congregate. 
in defiance and rebellion in opposition to God's explicit command. They congregate and they build the Tower of Babel. And we see that table of nations come where they build the Tower of Babel and God judges them by separating them. He confounds their languages and drives them apart. He makes it impossible for them to stay together. It's a fascinating account. You should check it out. And so we see another act of judgment. So things, though the situation looked bleak, though it looked dark and bleak, man, judgment. Okay, recreation, Noah, judgment. Man, another one, judgment, the Tower of Babel. Things look very bleak. But God's plan of redemption, unbeknownst to them, was well underway. Which brings us to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This is a hugely massive, important scripture. This is this Genesis 12, you need to highlight it. You need to bracket it in your Bibles. You need to highlight it. You need to learn what it says and, and what it means. Because uh, really, everything that happens after this, everything, including the New Testament, Jesus, all of it flows from this promise. So let's read it. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this is huge. Why is this huge? Because these are the first words that God spoke to mankind since Noah. Since Noah. The first words that we have explicitly since Noah. And about 400 years have passed since then. And some of his first words are the promise to redeem and bless the nations. Isn't that beautiful? Some of his first words, not his first actions, his first words. And his first words are the, are the promise to redeem and bless every nation, every nation. We can also see the significance of this because the story time drastically slows down. Once we get to Genesis 12, the narrative time slows compared to the rest of it. Even most of the Bible doesn't see uh, this type of flowing of story time at this rapid pace. On low estimates, for example, what, what am I talking about? Think about it. Genesis 1 through 11 represents over 2,000 years of history on the low estimates. 2,000 years of history. Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11. Just think of how much is, is crammed in there of world history. And then he gets to Abraham and slows way down, never to pick up that type of pace again in any single book. And so this, again, this is hugely significant because the Bible zooming in. He's calling our attention to something really important that happens here. And there's three elements to this promise. Three elements to God's promise to Abraham. Land, seed, and blessing. Worldwide blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. We're looking at seed right now. We'll have to talk about land another time. Uh, I spoke about that some in Revelation, but uh, right now we're zooming in on seed, the promise of seed, of offspring. I'll make of you a great nation, he says. And so we see this promise of a seed that God's purpose is to form, or we could say reform, this people, to reform a people. And so... After this promise, the Bible continues and it traces this promise from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, who would have 12 sons. One of those sons, before the, the 12 is completed, would be called Joseph. We see the story of Joseph and God uses a famine to move his people to Egypt, where he sends them to Egypt. That sets up the stage for part two in the book of Exodus. Isn't this an incredible story? It's, it's mind-blowing. God uses a famine to move his people where he needs them to be. I wonder what God is doing with the coronavirus. I wonder what movements he's doing. Undoubtedly, he's doing something. But he moves his people into Egypt, which sets the stage. Now, Egypt would be, as we saw in our time in Exodus, like an incubator. They go into Egypt as a tribe or an extended family, and they emerge a nation, a great nation after 400 years. 
which brings us, so that was Ab uh, Adam, Abraham, and the assembly of God. This brings us to the assembly of God. So this brings us to the final movement of our first point. So Exodus comes, the, this is the assembly. Exodus comes, we have the 10 plagues, the judgment on Egypt that we all are very familiar with. Let my people go. They've made movies about this. Awesome uh, to see it visualized. Uh, and so we see the Exodus of Egypt. And this was the defining redemptive event for God's people in the Old Testament. If you were a Jew, before the time of Christ, if you're an Israelite before the time of Christ, and there's no cross, what do they look back to? They look back to the Exodus. That is their defining redemptive event in the history of Israel. It is where, uh, where ultimately, they in Passover, they remember the final plague that set them free from slavery and where God called his people out of Egypt. It's just massively huge uh, movement of God in history and time. But it's not a standalone event. As important as it is, it's not a standalone event. God calls them out of Egypt from slavery, but where does he take them to? Think about this. We all know about what he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, but where does he take them to? He rescues them from slavery, but he takes them to somewhere. Where does he take them to? Where's the next second climax of the book? Do you remember uh, church when we worked through this? He brings them the second climax. Uh, the first one is crossing of the Red Sea and the Passover. That's the first climax. The second climax of the book of Exodus is when he brings his, his now newly redeemed people, his free people, to Mount Sinai, where they assemble. Where they assemble together in his very presence. Now this assembly is hugely significant as well. Like I said, it forms the, the second climax of the book of Exodus. Now listen to Moses reflecting on this 40 years later. So Moses is looking back. If you had like the memoirs of Moses, perhaps this would be in it. And this comes from Deuteronomy 4.10, which was our passage that we read. Now Deuteronomy itself uh, is itself a covenant renewal document created 40 years later after this in the plains of Moab. And what is it that he tells Israel to remember forever? So he tells them to remember something forever. He tells them to teach something to their children and their children's children. What is it that he wants them to remember forever? Check this out. It was the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. When he said to me, check this out, assemble the people before me to hear my words. Assemble the people before me to hear my words. What does he want us? What does he want the, the children, the grandchildren, the great grandchildren to remember and teach forever? The day that they assembled before God to hear his word. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? What's even more interesting is the Septuagint. The Septuagint is hugely formative uh, because it was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. There's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, very popular uh, in the time uh, uh, in which it was written and beyond, even now uh, to this day. But check out how the Septuagint translates God's command here. Well, I can't have you check it out. Uh, I had a different setup. Uh, assemble the people before me. Really, it, the translation is by the words, it's going to sound familiar for those of you who know the New Testament language a little bit. Ecclesion, pros, meton. Ecclesion. Does that sound like anything? Ecclesia. Assemble. Ecclesia. The assembly of God, which also happens to be the title to my sermon, the assembly of God. That's a very good translation of that term, ecclesia. In other words, the Exodus redemptive event led to Israel's assembly. And this assembling at Mount Sinai became the definitive assembly for Israel. It marked the climax of God's redemptive work in the Exodus. And in this assembly, the people were to stand before God. And this would be a covenant community that was formed by hearing God's law. 
and receiving God's Word. This isn't just something they did as an already existing nation. It's not just an activity they engaged in. As the redeemed people of God, this assembling in His presence is where they found their covenant identity and their relationship with God. It's this assembly in His presence. And these assemblies would not only just happen sometimes, they would be mandated three times a year at great cost to the people to come and do this together. And there was multiple other expressions of this as later seen in the synagogue gatherings of the people throughout history. And we, if we had time, we could trace this out in all kinds of ways as this plays out across the rest of the Old Testament. But what I want to point you to is Stephen. So if we were to fast forward to the New Testament, Stephen. Remember Stephen got stoned. He preached a sermon. And at the end of that sermon, he got stoned. And, and, uh, and in the middle of that sermon, Acts chapter 7, verse 38, this is what he says. Listen to Stephen. He's looking back on this time in the wilderness at Sinai. New Testament now. This is the one, Acts 7.38, this is the one who is in the congregation, there it is, ecclesia, church, anywhere else translated in the New Testament, church. This is the one who is in the congregation, the ecclesia, in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. Do you see what Stephen's doing? He's rehearsing, he's recapping these events, just like we're doing right now. And what word does he use to refer to Israel? Ecclesia. Assembly. In the congregation. The church in the wilderness. In the book of Exodus. Isn't that incredible? It's just, and again, if we had time, we'd examine how this word is used, not just here, but throughout the Septuagint to translate the Hebrew words for assembly. And, and just repeatedly it's there. We see it at the dedication of the temple. We see it in the return from the exiles. And many other points in, in Israel's history, we see this assembling. Even if we were to fast forward to Jesus and his usage of the word ecclesia in Matthew 16 or Matthew 18, Jesus is himself talking to Jews, building on a word that has rich theological meaning for his hearers. This isn't the first time they heard that word ecclesia. They would have heard that and hearkened way back to Mount Sinai. And so it becomes clear that the Old Testament usage of the word ecclesia, the Old Testament background, has full, is just pregnant with meaning for his people. It is the most clear, vivid expression for the redeemed kingdom of God. And it depicts the sovereign God as the one who dwells in the midst of his people and who summons them to assemble before him. Sound familiar? Because again, we're going back to that big idea. God's purpose is to create his people in his place under his rule for his glory. And this term, ecclesia, encaptures, uh, encapsulates all of that, as we see even at the very beginning. And so, uh, truly, the church, the ecclesia of God, was not born at Pentecost, no, it wasn't. It was born much before. But what was Pentecost then? It was special, for sure. But what was it then? If it wasn't the birthday of the church, if it wasn't born, it is very significant. What was Pentecost? Let's put it like this. If the Exodus, the Exodus is the redemptive all right, there's a word. If it's the redemptive Old Testament event, then Mount Sinai is the assembling event of the Old Testament. It is the primary assembling event of the Old Testament. And so I'd propose to you that what, what the assembly is at Sinai is to the Exodus, what the assembling at Mount Sinai is to the Exodus, Pentecost is to the cross. I'm going to say that again. What the assembly event is at Mount Sinai is to the Exodus. How God saved them from slavery in Egypt and brought them to himself to formally assemble before him. What the, what the Mount Sinai assembly event is to the Exodus, Pentecost is to the cross. It serves as an empowering moment for the assembling 
the assembled people of God. It serves as a defining covenant community where God's people are formally instituted, commissioned, and sent out finally to go and accomplish God's purposes, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion as we see the Holy Spirit come in power upon his newly redeemed, freed covenant community and commissions him and empowers him to go out to every corner of the globe. It's an incredible event. So that's Adam, Abraham, and the assembly of God, point number one. Point number two is Christ, fulfillment, and the new covenant community. Christ, fulfillment, and the new covenant community. So now we're going to fast forward. We're going to go all the way uh, through some history. I don't have time for the kingdom. I don't have time for the exile. I don't have time for the uh, rebuilding of the temple. I, I just don't have time for any of these types of things uh, this time. So we're going to fast forward and come to Christ. How does, how and where does Jesus step into this scheme? Well, let's go back to Genesis chapter 12. You don't have to literally go back there, but Recall your mind back there to God's covenant with Abraham to, to make his name great, to bless all the families of the earth through his offspring. Now, this was not ultimately referring to Israel as a nation. The promise to bless all the families of the earth through the offspring of Abraham is not ultimately referring to Israel as a nation. It was ultimately referring to one descendant of Abraham. Just one, ultimately. Not the nation, just one. Who is that? Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that's how God would bless all the families of the earth through Jesus Christ. Here, Galatians 3.16. Now, New Testament, Paul's letter, Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises, this is Paul himself, grow up a very devout Jew, highly trained, highly skilled in the word, Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Close quote. That's Galatians 3.16. And so the, the Holy Spirit-inspired perspective of the New Testament is that Jesus is the true Israel of God. The fulfillment of what Israel as a nation pointed to. Jesus is the substance. He is the true Israel, the faithful Israel. Many have noted how the New Testament fleshes this out in, in incredible ways. For instance, uh, the gospel according to Matthew, he takes great pains to show that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the true Israel. For instance... Jesus is literally portrayed as re-walking the steps, re-walking the, the steps of the nation of Israel. And where Israel failed each time, Jesus was faithful at every turn. Literally, Matthew opens with the book, a book of the beginning of Jesus Christ. You could almost say uh, a genesis of Jesus Christ. Oddly enough, the book of Genesis is divided into ten sections of uh, different genealogies with the phrase, these are the generations of. And that's exactly how Matthew begins. These are the generations. These are the beginnings of Jesus Christ. And this is the first clue that Matthew sees what Jesus is doing as continuity with Genesis, with God's purposes in the book of Genesis as the beginning of a new nation of Israel. He goes on in Matthew's gospel and, and he displays his life as a, as a retracing the exodus. Soon after Jesus is born, we see his family flees to Egypt to escape a king who issues an order to kill all the young baby boys in his region, just like where? Just like Exodus with Moses. This is why in Matthew chapter 2, he cites Hosea 11.1 from the Old Testament. Here's what he says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea was talking about the nation of Israel, but Matthew is here applying it to the person of Jesus. Why? Because again, Matthew sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament pictures of which Israel was just one of those pictures as a nation. 
Matthew chapter 3 continues on and we see Jesus enter the waters of baptism just as Israel leaves Egypt and they go through the Red Sea. So Jesus returns from Egypt and the very next chapter shows his baptism. He's entering the waters of baptism. And just like after Israel went through the Red Sea, they went into the wilderness for how many years in the desert? For 40 years. So Jesus, after his baptism in Matthew chapter 4, guess where he goes? Into the wilderness. For how long? 40 days and 40 nights to be tested. And he passes. Israel failed. Jesus passed. And how many sons did Israel begin with, the nation? How many did I say? Do you remember? How many sons of Jacob did he have? Twelve. How many apostles does Jesus call? Eight? Four? Six? Ten? No. Jesus calls twelve. Do you think that's a coincidence? No. Everybody would have seen it in his day. They knew what he was doing. He called twelve for a reason. Because Jesus is stepping into and fulfilling the promise of God to the nation of Israel. And as he fulfills them, this is important, he's not replacing Israel as the people of God. This is a key, key phrase. He is not replacing Israel as the people of God. Some people would call what I'm preaching replacement theology. It is not replacement theology. He is not replacing Israel. They call it that because they misunderstand it, because they don't take time to listen to it and understand what's actually being said, many of them. But this is actually not replacing. He's not replacing Israel as the people of God. What is Jesus doing? He's expanding Israel. He's clarifying who the true Israel is and who it has always been. And who is that? Those who are united to Jesus, the true Israel by faith in him. I'll say that again. He is not replacing Israel as a nation, per se, as the people of God. He is expanding and clarifying who the true Israel is and has always been. And who is that? Those who are united to Jesus by faith in him. And so if I ask the question, who are the true children of Abraham and the true Israel of God today? How would we answer that? Who is the true Israel of God today? Is it the ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Here's the New Testament. Galatians 3.7. Now we're going to go fast. I'm going to list off a whole bunch of passages. Uh, I might not read them all. Uh, Galatians 3, 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So who are the sons of Abraham? Those of faith. Galatians 3, 28 to 29, he says this, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And check this out. And if you are Christ's, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. Romans 2, 28 and 29. Again, this is to the church. New Testament. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. You could write Philippians 3.3 3 down. That's another good one. We're going to go to 1 Peter 2, 9-10. And what I, want, what I want you to note is the Old Testament titles that are applied to the New Testament people of God. 1 Peter 2, 9-10. Check this out. But you, talking about you, KBC and Gentiles, people by faith in Jesus and all over, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Those are Old Testament titles applied to Israel, now being applied to the church seamlessly, without any issues for them. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You've been brought in. You've been brought in. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's beautiful. Or our passage in Hebrews 12. 
Hebrews 12 that was read, uh, verse 22 to 24, and he says this, hear the, hear the contrast. This is referring to Exodus that we had read, or that we were talking about. But you have come not to Mount Sinai, he's saying, but you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, to the, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And his covenant, his blood, it says, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So I think for this sermon, this is sufficient for us to see that the New Testament uh, identifies the church united by faith to Jesus, the true Israel, as the new people of God, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, and it consists not of just ethnic descendants of Abraham, but people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this is the work of God in Christ, to form a transnational people of God in fulfillment of his plan of redemption that began way back in Genesis chapter 3. And what we saw and Genesis was that God first created a place and then he formed people on the last day. But now in this movement of God, in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, God is first forming a people and then he will form his place and put them in it. And there, there, when his kingdom is fully inaugurated, his will will be perfectly done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's our first two points. Adam, Abraham, and the assembly of God. That was point number one. Number two is Christ, the fulfillment, and the new covenant community. Number two. And now let's just move in. Let's close out a few, time, a few more minutes with practical implication. Practical and theological implication. So out of all of this, if we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's kingdom here gathered and assembled before him, redeemed by the blood of Christ, united to him by faith, what ought these things mean? First consideration, perhaps Belinda Carlisle wasn't so far off when she sang her song, Ooh, Heaven is a place on earth. Maybe she wasn't totally off when she sang those famous lyrics that are probably now going to be in your head for the rest of the day. Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. There's truth to it, but it's nothing we do. It's not the love we have or anything we can form. Where is it then? If heaven is a place on earth, uh, we can say a piece of heaven is a place on earth. And where is that to be found? That is to be found in this new covenant community, the assembly of God, when the people gather together to worship Him. We call it the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scriptures liken this church to an embassy, an outpost of heaven on earth. Beloved, when we gather this incredible, miraculous event happening. It represents the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into this time and location, almost from the future. It's breaking in now. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's now. It's in your very midst. It's a small foretaste of the world to come when we gather. It's like seeing in a mirror dimly. I love how Bunyan pictures this just beautifully in his scene on the delectable mountains. Christian comes there, he's tired, he's weary. And one of the shepherds, one of the shepherds takes him to a spot on the mountain, on these delectable mountains. He takes him to a spot on the mountain and with the help of a looking glass, he shows Christian, we would call this like binoculars, with the help of a looking glass, he gives Christian a glimpse. He says, from this spot, you can see the, the gates of the celestial city. And he gives Christian this looking glass and, and 
Christian gets a, a glimpse. It's a shaky glimpse because he's, he's still recovering from his past sin, his past failure. It's a, it's a dim, shaking glimpse, but he sees it and he sees it and it gives him hope and encouragement. Do you see what Bunyan's trying to portray here? It's beautiful that in the gathered church, when we gather through the ministry of the word, this covenant community formed by the word of God, when we gather through the ministry of the word with the help of faithful shepherds and God's people, that God in a God-wrought, Holy Spirit-worked way, we get a glimpse, a small, albeit imperfect glimpse of the glories of the world to come. That's crazy. How does Bunyan do that? He's in jail when he's writing this. And he's thinking about his church. And, and when he can see heaven most clearly in this world is when he is with the gathered people of God. Here's what this means. That the more you know these people in the church, the more you love these people in the church, the better of a glimpse you get. That's a stunning beautiful picture. The more you know the people of God, the more you love the people of God, the better of a glimpse you get of this. That's the first consideration. Heaven is a place on earth. Second one, as we gather in this new covenant community, this outpost of the kingdom of God on earth, this is hugely important by the way, so uh, listen very carefully. We see in this community, this is a place where the rulers of the earth have very limited authority. It's important for our day to remember, for any day at all times, the rulers of earth in this gathered covenant community have very limited authority. Kings, presidents, governors, local authorities throughout history like King Nebuchadnezzar of old or the Caesars of Rome have all learned one way or another that their authority is limited when it concerns the people of God. Their authority is very limited. See, the church gathered is the place where the kingship and the supremacy of Jesus is seen most clearly as his people hear his words, cherish his promises, and obey his mandates, even at the cost of their jobs, their families, their retirements, and sometimes their lives. This covenant community is a place where the kings of the earth have very limited authority. Third consideration. Third consideration. I love this one. The singularity of God's people in the church, this one people of God in the church, points to the cross-cultural scope of our mission. Points to the cross-cultural scope of our mission. This means that we should strive, Kahului Baptist, to reflect the diversity of ethnicities in our church that we see in our community. What do I mean? Simply put, we should be a church for all peoples. We should be a church for all peoples who are brought to faith in Christ. Which means this isn't a church for local people only. This isn't a church for Japanese people only, or for Filipino people only, or for mainland transplants, or for whatever where we section people off according to their cultural preferences and, and upbringing. No. This is a church for all peoples, all nations, all languages, because Christ is forming a people of every tribe and tongue and people and nation to praise, honor, and extol the name of Jesus forever and ever. And we should reflect this in our practices. We should reflect this more in our practices. What I mean is, there is no reason why Two English-speaking churches in the same location should be separate just because one is a different ethnicity. Let's say that again. There's no biblical reason why two English-speaking churches who meet in a very similar location should be separate just because of ethnicity. It defies the very unity that God's Holy Spirit is bringing about in His people. And so we want to reflect this as a church for all peoples. And what this also means is that if you're listening to this, wherever you're from, whatever your 
cultural upbringing is. You might be the furthest thing from uh, an Israelite. Whatever your background is, that means Jesus loves you. That means Jesus will have you, no matter who you are, no matter what your kinship is, your, your background, no, no matter what any of those things are, Jesus will have you today. He stands today and he has commissioned me and our whole church to tell you that if you will repent and believe in Christ for life, that you will be forgiven of your sins and you will have life forevermore with God and you don't have to work for it. You don't have to pay for it. It's not based on how good you are. Like when you have good days, you might go to heaven more. When you have bad days, well, I'm not so sure. It's not based on any of those things. It's based on your profession of faith that you would trust in Jesus, the true Israel, to forgive you of your sins and give you life in him. That invitation is for you, for all peoples, nations, and languages. And so I invite you, friend, trust in Jesus and find life in Him. And God will bring you to His rule, to Himself, and His presence forever and ever. Fourth consideration. I love this one. The nature of the church, this assembly of God, is a fulfillment and expansion of God's people in the Old Testament, means that you, today, Though most of us listening do not have an a Israelite heritage, we are not Hebrews or Israeli or Jews in any form or fashion, most of us, this means that for us Gentiles, this is awesome, it means that you can confidently say, God is my Father, I belong to Him. I am His people. I am his son, his daughter. That is a beautiful statement. It means that Psalm 23 wasn't written for the nation of Israel. That beautiful psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It means this psalm was written for all who place their faith in Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. And what does it say? It says his goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It means that you have the right by virtue of your union with Christ by faith, to enter the throne room of God, to find mercy and grace to help in your time of need whenever you want to. Think about that. Think about that. To enter the throne room of God in your time of need. Who can do that? Who can just go into the, the throne room of the Most High King of Glory uninvited? You remember the book of Esther? Where she was afraid to even approach a Persian king. Why? Because she would be killed if she was uninvited. She could be killed for not being summoned. You don't just go into uh, the king without an appointment or being summoned. Maybe to help illustrate this, I want to tell you about a, an issue I have with a few people in our church. And uh, I don't think they'll be offended, but I didn't ask them about this. I have this issue with a few people in my church, and uh, most all of you are very respectful when I'm in my office counseling, studying, meeting with somebody. Uh, you kind of come in, and, and you don't want to interrupt, so I'll see you look in the, the window and be like, oh, I'll, I'll come back, I'll come back. Or, or you'll be like, hey, you busy? Do you have a minute? Can you talk to me? I know you're, right? you're very respectful, most of you. Uh, or you knock. You'll knock and say, hey, what's up? Most of you are very, very respectful, but there's a small cluster of people in our church who show almost no regard for what I'm doing when I'm in my office. They're almost, they have no regard. They just bust into my office whenever they want to. They don't ask. There's no knocking. It doesn't matter if I'm in a session. It doesn't matter if I'm counseling. It doesn't matter if I'm sermon prep. They just walk right in. They help themselves. They sit in my chair. Sometimes they move my stuff around. Who would be so audacious? Who would feel like they have such a, a right to do such a thing without asking? Who are these people? There's three of them. And they're my children. They're my beloved children. Titus, Scarlet, and Haddon. And they rightly possess the freedom to come and have access to their father at any time that they need him. And beloved as God's children, as His people, you have access to Him at all 
times. He invites your access. He commands your access. He grants it for your joy and for his glory. And one day, our faith and prayer to him will give way to sight, and we will be his people in his place, under his rule, praising his glory forever and ever. Until then, let me close this sermon with the words from Hebrews 12, 28 to 29. Here's what he says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father in heaven. As your word has been spoken, I pray that you would nourish your flock, that you would build them up in the word and in faith, and that we would realize this great heritage that we have received through Christ as you have one people, one plan, and you are spiraling all of us to your purpose, your grand finale, when we see our great Savior in live, living color, in person. And so, Father, may that day come quickly, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.